good morning. Hey, this is awesome. This is perfect line right here in the middle. Nobody there at all. It's called the Kingdom and the Caliphate. We're talking about a group that has its eyes set upon world domination, if that is actually possible. They are a group who have committed themselves to using their own religion to bolster them in a motivation, to expand their kingdom through violence, to recruit through propaganda, and to intimidate through gruesome public executions, primarily beheading and also even crucifixion. A group that specifically targets Christians when they are in their area. The name of the group that we're going to talk about today is the Roman Empire. That was the state of affairs in first century Israel when our New Testament was being written. Rome was the organization that had their sights set on world domination, and they were quickly moving forward into it. They used violence to intimidate. Beheadings were one of their primary forms of execution. They also used crucifixion. They were terribly violent and accepted no compromise. It is within that context that Jesus came. And it is within that world that He taught. And He modeled what it meant to serve God. And so what it means for us when we look at the teachings of Jesus, when He says something as crazy as, love your enemies. He knew what He was talking about. There was a real enemy. A real enemy that was very near, very present. When He gave His followers practical examples on how to love your enemy, there was a flesh and blood enemy there. They knew who He meant. They knew what He meant by it. It also means that as things get worse in our world, our scriptures become more relevant to us. As terrorism, organized violence, oppression becomes more experienced by us, we start to relate emotionally all the more to that first generation of Christians. This question comes up. It's in the news a lot right now. What do we do? How do we respond? What does it mean? We find that even in a worst-case scenario, if ISIS were to expand their kingdom and our lives would be affected, the Scriptures would become even more relevant and relevant to us in a way that we don't normally take them. We love figurative language. We love the description of the spiritual world. We are really uncomfortable for the most part when Jesus gives us descriptions of what He wants for the physical world. We don't know what to do with it. The first century world was experiencing a world that would be for us as if ISIS invaded and won and we were now living under their caliphate. It would be in that context that the early church grew, expanded, 
and boldly proclaim the message of love that began to transform the world. Jesus didn't happen up to um, arrive when he did by accident. There had certainly been many times before where there was an oppressive government, but this time was known and Jesus was brought into that time on purpose. Not because it was somehow the right time and no other time would work, but every, God knew what was going on in the world. He knew the situation that Jesus was going into. He knew the way that he had chosen to reveal himself. God with us, let me show you what I'm like. And so he chose a time when he got to display what he's really like. What's really important to God. When Jesus came, he was there to show us the full description of what the Father looks like. This is what I'm like. If it's up to me, I'd choose a little bit more of a friendly atmosphere to show you how gracious and nice and kind I am. And I'll deal with those unfortunate religious teachers of the law and we'll sort out theologically what we need to get going on. But he knew that there would be an outworking that was extremely difficult, which he said, this is the way I am. I will passionately die for you. The way that we want to finish that is, I will fight for you. If it's worth doing it, I'll fight for you. I'll die for you. I'll kill for you. And Jesus said, it's so important. I love you so much. The only way that we're going to get to redemption, the only way you're going to see the world as the way I meant it to be seen is if you get that I will do anything for you. I will give my life. Not I will die on the battlefield and we'll try to change it, but I will so radically change the way that you think, the way that you believe, the way that we set this world in motion, that you will get it because I will simply die for you. And in doing that, I will release so much that is not the way we think. Later on, Christianity rose to power. We had the empire. We had the armies. They were on our side. We got military might. And we blew the whole thing. Because Jesus' teaching is not really about how to steward military might well. Jesus' teaching shows us how to let it go and to love through service and laying your life down. If we follow Jesus, if that's what our goal is, then that's what we're going to learn how to do. That's what's going to be what starts to rise up. Not because we're going to specifically teach about that one thing, but as the Spirit manifests and, and comes alive in us, this is what comes to life. Love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that will appear as we focus on Jesus, the Holy Spirit will cause these things to become alive and real within us. Not just when things are good, but when things are the way they are, in the midst of it all. That's why Rome is a great parallel to ISIS today. So we have a great history, a great rich reservoir of teaching that we can draw from to see what do we do when everything is not the way we want it. 
So the question, it comes up all the time. It's a water cooler discussion. It's an internet online kind of discussion where people make comments. Here's a report. Give me a comment. What do you think? What do you think we should do about ISIS? How are we going to respond? What do you think we should do? Is it right to do this? Is it wrong to do that? What are we going to do about ISIS? Now, when someone asks you that question, it's always a good idea to ask a question back to figure out what's going on. You need clarification. First of all, when you say we, what do you mean by we? And what do you mean by respond? What, what's the, what's the drop-down menu of options that you've got listed out in your mind? Here's the, the responses that we have. What are those possibilities that you're thinking of? It helps you, if you know what the response that you're planning on, it helps you to understand who the we is that we're talking about. For example, people say, what do you think? Should we be involved in bombing ISIS? And then we can quite naturally say, I don't think we, you and I, have any bombs. This is not something that's mine to respond to. And I can hypotheticalize it all I would like, but it's not my decision. You and I don't have the ability to respond in that way. As far as I know, you have no bombs. Now, maybe I'm wrong. That helps us to understand the we that we're talking about. And the we that's most practical to talk about is the we, the you and I, because that's where I live. That's where you live. What can we actually do? So then rather than having a conversation about we, meaning the government, should do, we're neither a political nor a governmental gathering. Um, we are not in a position to set, make, or maintain a national policy. We're not elected officials responsible for the national security. This is a church where we as Christians need to ask, well, what are we going to do? So as a church, let me assure you, we also do not have any bombs. What we need to be saying as a church is, how do I earnestly pursue Jesus? This is the question that comes back all the time. It's not so much in this moment in time. This moment in time is answered the same way I answer everything else. I am earnestly in pursuit of Jesus. And how will that develop? How will that grow into a real-life presentation? How will that make God with us more apparent? How will this bring about grace and truth the way that Jesus came? Sometimes we as Christians would very much like the government to follow Jesus for us. I don't think it's our job. We could get into trouble on this one, but I don't think it's our job to get the government to act more like Jesus. I think it's our job to get the church to act more like Jesus. Once we're done that, we can move along. But we're going to be busy on that first part for an awfully long time. So the we that we're going to be talking about as we look at the caliphate and the kingdom, the we in this series is us. You and I. 
the regular folks, the people that you live with, the people that you work with, we're all in the same sort of boat. What will it mean for us to do this? The church of Jesus Christ, specifically us here at Into One, what do we do? So first of all, uh, where did ISIS come from? ISIS stands for the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Excuse me, they're also being um, known periodically as ISIL. More their choice to be known that way because ISIL means the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. We are not typically familiar with the Levant, but it's an area of land that's not so um, geopolitical as we draw it. It's an old geopolitical kind of designation that um, from where they are in Iraq, but it in, uh, includes Israel. It is not where they are, but it is very much where they intend to go. That is the point. Also known just as IS or the Islamic State. Their origins, they are an Al-Qaeda splinter group. They've splintered because they were rejected. They were rejected by Al-Qaeda because they were too radical. For anyone standing on the outside, just to put your scorecard up, if you're too radical for Al-Qaeda, you've set the bar particularly high in being radical. Their leader is Abu Bakar al-Baghdadi, and he is a military leader. He worked with Al-Qaeda for years and years and years. He is a military-trained leader. He is good at what he does. He also has a PhD in Islamic studies, which is an ideal way to blend two things together. It means he knows the Quran, and he knows how to use the Quran for his own ends. He knows how to teach with a voice of authority from it. So now he's become a self-appointed cleric not just a military leader. So you bringing these two things together, it is very much holy what he is doing. Holy in the sense being that spiritual honoring to God kind of thing. The religion that it's based on? Islam. But it's important to always say there is breadth. We know that there's breadth everywhere. And if you talk to a moderate Muslim who lives in North America and say, hey, are these guys Muslim just like you? I think your Muslim friend would be very fair in asking this question. Are these guys Christian? These guys base their teachings on the Christian scriptures. If you ask them what they're doing, their plan is based on Scripture, justified by Scripture. They are Christian, just like you, right? It is possible to come from the same place and be divergent. So a moderate, moderate Muslim in the West would want to say to us that the ISIS Islamic way is the same as the KKK way of Christianity. It's there if you look, but it's not the way that it's supposed to work. The goal, the goal of an, of, an, of an Islamic state is called a caliphate. And the way that it works so well is the kingdom is what Jesus has called us to. The kingdom of God is here. The caliphate is the same sort of idea, just not Christian. It's not about Jesus. So you'd have a caliphate, and the leader of a caliphate is a caliph, a caliph. That would be leading it. 
And in this place, it's very important for us to realize that the Quran is very similar to our Old Testament in that the kingdom described in the Old Testament is very physical. It's a political kingdom. It has geo-boundaries. This is a place, a group of people within that place, a geographical kingdom and a religious kingdom all at the same time. They're bound together. So a caliphate is the goal of ISIS, to see a Muslim nation, a place where religion, politics, government, military, the national law, the civic law, religious laws, they're all one, led by Sharia law. That's law drawn out of the Quran. It would be a state where you as a Muslim can walk out your door and be Muslim. You can go to the mosque and pray and be Muslim. You can go to um, the market and be Muslim. There's no tension of living as an outsider, living within a secular society, not, not a society that uh, has claimed to be Christian or atheist or anything else. The caliphate is the goal. And once it's established, then the goal is to see that caliphate spread and grow across borders. It's not just the establishment. It's the establishment followed by the expansion of this. Now, when you think of ISIS, you say, well, that's different. They're bad. What they're doing is wrong. But the principle underlying is the same. The principle of the kingdom of God is that we would establish the kingdom, and from that place, it would grow. That we would very much be about the same kinds of things, the reasons why and what exactly we're trying to do are different, but the language is the same. And if we were left with just the Old Testament, and they have just the Quran, there would be a lot of similarities that you could come to from those same, uh, those, the same sort of outliving of those books. Their progress, it's been stunning. They've hit a nerve. They hit a felt need. They've hit a niche. People have been finding from 800 fighters to over 30,000 in a couple of months that grows. They're spending more than $20 million a day. They have a funding that is coming to pay, to expand, to fight. People are traveling from around the world to join them to be part of this, some for religious-based reasons, some for violence-based reasons. The implications. What is ISIS doing? Slaughter. Oppression. Torture. Terrorism. Inspiration. Inspiration is, doesn't seem to fit in that same sort of way, but even though ISIS does not seem to be able to jump continents, they don't have that sort of an ability to sort of all get on their large boats and go and invade. They're not large enough. They don't have a strong enough base yet. Um, they inspire those that are already living in other places to start to live out the radicalized version of Islam and to give them a cheering squad, a place and a movement and a following for their violent expression. Radicalized is an important word to get there. We use it a lot right now, and it's very tainted by the way we say it. Radical means the roots of. So what we're saying is they're getting to the roots of. So what the response for a Christian we would like to do is we would like to say, we need to get radicalized. We need to go back to our roots. We need to get back to the fundamentals, right? We all know that the Toronto Maple Leafs are setting a new record for the losingest team 
that they've ever got. What they need to do, they will always tell you, is we've got to get back to the roots. We've got to get back to the fundamentals. We've got to play a simple game. We've got to stop gripping our stick too tight. We have to get back to what we're really about. Well, part of what it means to be a Christian and what we're going to focus on, again, is how do we get back to our roots? What is it that we've come from so that we can speak about a radicalization as well? So ISIS would say, there's a problem with radicalization. You go, there's no problem. That's exactly what we want. We want people to get back to the old beliefs. We don't want a new and progressive view of what we believe. We want to get back to the roots. Where do we get this from? Where does it come from? Well, next week we're going to talk a little bit more about Islam in general and, and how it fits and how they overlap. Um, but for now, the Quran is filled with verses of peace. It's filled with verses about God's mercy. And yet it does have a number of what have been called uh, sword verses, a substantial number of sword verses. Sword verses are those places where we would say, this is where it advocates for. Now, it's important, again, when we say this is what the Quran does. It has a lot of sword passages. Well, so does the Old Testament. And if you were to add them up number by number, passage by passage, the Old Testament is a larger book than the Quran. And there are more passages in the Old Testament that would be used potentially as sword verses than the Quran. It's important to understand what it is that we're dealing with because sometimes we like to whitewash, right? We both have those kind of passages, and yet there has been a very different growth over time. Many verses that you can turn to in the Old Testament for the justification of war and violence, we have in our history crusades, we have witch burnings, we have inquisitions, um, and somehow we, we, we came through all those passages and we've still come up now with the God of peace. We, we, we let those things exist at the same time, a God of peace and a God of love, emphasized in the coming of Jesus. It's just depending on how you want to focus on some of those things. You can manipulate scriptures any way you want, and we've seen people, um, generation after generation, do that, to say, what's the focus that we're about right now? And we know that at different periods of history, we've dealt with different issues, and people will use the scriptures to look at each other and say, the Bible clearly teaches that. Which is another way of saying, if you don't agree with me, you're stupid. We're really bad at doing this. Because when we get in our positions, we become entrenched as well. And we become unable or unwilling to see things from a full perspective. And so we've done it over time. We did it with slavery. We do it with race separations. We do it um, with different theological principles. How we treat... Uh, Calvinist and Arminianist. What do we do with Catholics and what do we do with Protestants? And we, we, we have a way of learning how to separate and using the Bible not as a method to point us to Jesus which guides us into truth, love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness. And we found it as a way to hit people because it works well as a club. Boom, you're wrong, especially if you have a hardcover Bible. I didn't bring it today, but I have my super Christian Bible at home, and it's big, and it's thick, and it's got straps on it, so I got a good swing. And that's the way we've used the Bible. We use it to tell people, you're wrong, and you're sinful. This is why. And Jesus said, I love you, and I can help you. I will pay whatever it takes for you. 
I am so in love with you that I will die to save you. Somehow we think that message is still coming across when we say, boom, the Bible says. I have to be very careful about how this works out. The difference here is that the Quran has no New Testament. The Quran is the end. That's the end of the story. They have, the Medit, they have other books that they follow along, but they don't carry the same weight. There is no part two. There is no, this is where we were leading. Talk about that more next week. But the, the, the back to the roots. Imagine that ISIS has invaded. They have won, and they are well established in this land. The current climate of that first century was that a Messiah needs to come. We have been waiting. We received the punishment that we deserve from the Babylonian Empire. We took the punishment that we deserve from the Assyrian Empire. We have reformed. We have seen what we have done wrong. And now that the Persian Empire has allowed us to come free, we have started this movement. Pharisees where we said, we will look at the law and we will not let our people fall into the same traps that we were before. We will earnestly pursue that law, keeping us pure, keeping us holy. We will not allow the imperfections of the past to become our future. We will fight hard against that. Into that context, Jesus came with the people suffering under the weight of Rome, longing for Messiah to come to band together these people from their villages, to raise up the people from wherever they were, to call out the fishermen, to call out the shepherds, to call out the merchants, to get them to understand their role before God and to rise an army that would push out Rome. That's what they were waiting for. They were longing for Messiah to come, light the fire, and let's start this battle. Let's clean out the country. And into that, Jesus arrived. There to push out the oppressor, but in a very, very different way than anyone was anticipating. So how does Jesus, this Messiah that's come to save his people, what's he going to say about how we're going to do this to Rome? Look at Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 27. He starts by saying, but to you who are listening, I say. What he's saying by that is, I know it's not all of you. I know that many people come and they listen. Some people are looking for the things that they can condemn me with. Some people are looking for a good story. Some people are following some guy who's getting famous. I just want to hear what the famous guy has to say. Maybe he'll sign my forehead. Maybe he'll write on my t-shirt. I can take this tunic home and frame it, and maybe my kids will be able to sell it for 45 shekels. I know that you're not all earnest to follow me. But for those who are, for those who want to follow, for those who are in earnest to run after in pursuit of Jesus, if that is you, then this message is for you. For everyone else, it's just garbage. They're not going to get it. They won't see the point. But for you who are earnest, this message is for you. Love your enemies. How on earth is the Messiah going to rally the troops, fire them up, 
so that we can win and clear this country of the evil um, invaders, take our nation back for God, when Jesus starts with, love your enemies. And of course, these people knew who their enemies were because they might very well be seeing them out of the corner of their eye. Like they're standing all around, right? That's the guy, you want us to go get him right now? He goes, yeah, I do. Go love them. And of course they knew what that was like. There was nothing hypothetical. There was nothing spiritualized about this. It was a very real, practical place. And the first overarching principle, what he gave them, here's my strategy. This is what we're going to do. Love your enemies. And then he goes on with three points that he has following that. Really quick, practical things of how you're going to do this. He says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Three ways of responding to three different levels of aggression. So here's the three ways that we're going to love our enemies. When they only hate us, okay? And the only is there because that's all it is right now. We know that they don't like us. They're just not for us. This is the place where we have the most space to be active. Now there's an opportunity for us to take the initiative, to do good to them. We know that they hate us, so we serve them. We'll do good to them. This is hard because this is when we would most like to pretend that nothing is happening. They're not really mad at us. It's just a misunderstanding. This is where we initiate goodness because as escalation continues, you might not have an opportunity later. The space won't be the same. When they only hate us, we serve them. When they curse us, when they become verbally abusive, we bless them. We pray blessing upon them. We pray blessing with truth, but we pray blessing. We do not respond in kind. When they aggress against us, when things get physical and we no longer have physical freedom to do what we would like, then we pray for them. This is the model of Jesus. If we are earnestly pursuing Him, this is what it looks like. He modeled this. He loved the Romans. He didn't just say it. He did it. It was word, but it was very much deed as well. Everywhere he went, he healed, he blessed, he offered the same package for those who were around him. When he was dying on the cross, he prayed for them. He prayed for those that were mistreating and killing him, even in that last possible moment. You cannot take from me that which I do not give you. I didn't come so that I would beat you. I would come so that I could love you and display the heart of God in this. As they were mistreating him and killing him, he prayed because he knew that they didn't understand. Not because he thought that's a nice thing to say. Boy, doesn't that sound pious. And doesn't it sound condescending? Oh, you don't know what you're doing. You don't understand how important. It wasn't like that. 
He looked at them and he said, you really don't get what you're doing. The empire that you live in has so dominated your thoughts that you cannot imagine this kingdom. And I'm trying to show you what the kingdom is like. And that's when the baton gets passed to us, that it's our job now to live and to display what the kingdom is like. To bring it into existence by the way that we love each other. By the way that we love those who are not each other. The thems. The guys that we don't like. We bring the kingdom in. And we know that it only exists in, little, in, in flickers. And little patches. When people get a glimpse. When God reveals to them what they're really seeing. But it's our job to keep making those flickers. The chance to see that there is a kingdom that is beyond what is just here. The world that Jesus opened to us is ours. We walk in it, we live in it, and as we do and we share that together, we open something that people don't get. They can't see. And you know that you don't understand it because only those who the Spirit calls come to the Father. That's how it works. We tell the truth. We try to live the truth. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would open eyes that are blinded, open ears that are deafened, so that they would get it. But the only way that you get there is through Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way we get there is when the Spirit prompts. So be about it. Be about revealing the kingdom. Be about living that out. Be about living in these ways that you would serve, that you would bless that you would pray and release what's there. Let it come to life, regardless of what kind of situation we are living in. Kind Father, thank you for the gift that you have given to us of Jesus and his life on this earth. It is so good to be able to watch what he has done. God, I confess that as I look forward even into this, these things are hard. It's really hard to imagine living the way that you lived. And I recognize in that that I don't think I can do that by myself. But I thank you that you have not called me to do this by myself. You've called us to do this together as we are being built and grown into one, that we would stand with each other. But more than that, that you would empower us to live, that your Holy Spirit lives within us transforming us, setting us free, renewing our minds that we would become all that you would have us to be. Release us into this, we pray. This week, in a physical, actual way, let us love those who are around us. pray this in Jesus' name. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Thanks for being with us today and braving the weather. One thing that we say, and the more I say it, the more weeks that pass, the more I believe that it's true, it's better when you're here. It's better when we're together. You make my life better, and I believe that together we will empower each other that our lives will be better as well as we would seek to 